0: Good morning church. Nice to see you. My name is Darren and uh, I serve on staff here as one of the leaders and shepherds. nice to be with you this morning. Happy Mother's Day. I know that's already been said. Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are celebrating and for those of you for whom uh, Mother's Day might be heavy or hard, uh, God's peace be with you. And if we can come alongside you as a church, let us know, We're, we're, uh, we're here to be family together. So if you're a guest, we're excited that you're with us, but we also wanna recognize that we don't want anybody to stay guest for very long. So if we can help you sort of turn the corner into calling this home, we'd love to help with that also. Now we're in the midst of a study in Ecclesiastes and this morning we're in the first seven verses. We're taking kind of a smaller chunk this week and then next week we start moving a little faster. So we're gonna take some larger chunks But I felt like it was important to take uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 uh, to demonstrate something important, not just to catch the the gist of what he's saying, although we'll do that too, but to talk about, uh, for a moment, even a a larger principle. So Ecclesiastes 5, 1 is a verse that is uh, very familiar to me because as a child, uh, there was a circumstance in which I had elders at the church my parents went to Quoting this verse to me regularly. So here in, in 5 1, it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And I, I know that verse by heart. Uh, it's very familiar because it was said to me a lot. And it came from a day when um, my friend Jason and I, as one of my closest friends growing up, uh, we decided to ditch church. I know that probably changes your, maybe it doesn't change your impression of me. Maybe you're like, yeah, that seems like the kind of guy he is. Uh, my, my friend Jason and I decided to ditch church. My parents were in the service and we decided to kind of sneak around to the back side of the building. The church I went to was building like a new addition onto the back of their building. And Jason and I snuck around and we were kind of walking around in that, uh, in that new construction area because they were, they had all these electrical boxes and they'd punched out these little holes and they made these little slugs and they looked like quarters. And Jason and I didn't have any money and that made us feel like we were getting closer to having money, kind of, so we're collecting these slugs during church and we're, whatever, and uh, then this really weird thing happens We're like, we're walking around, and all of a sudden, as I pick up my right foot, uh, I notice something strange. I notice that there's a board that comes with my shoe when I go, like, a, I'm carrying a board with my foot, and so at first I thought, well, maybe I stepped in something sticky, you know, and the board was stuck to me, and then as I looked a little bit closer, uh, I saw a nail poking through the top of my shoe. And while we were sneaking around uh, in the new building, uh, I stepped on a nail that was through a board. And basically now the board and I were attached to one another. And so at that point, I screamed. Uh, It wasn't masculine in any way. It was a very sort of ladylike fifth grade scream or whatever. And I sort of fell over and there was, it was a mess. And, uh, then people came running. Of course they realized we'd been ditching church. They take us outside to sort of assess the situation. One of the things that made it more complicated even than just stepping on a nail or ditching church is that my dad was the pastor of that church. And so, uh, that, that made it a little more complicated for me. They take me to the hospital. I get a tetanus shot. I didn't have to have many stitches, but for a while you could still see the scar, you know, where I had a nail all the way through my foot. And for a long time time, uh, the deacons or the elders at that church, whenever they saw me, they would be like, guard your step when you walk in the house of God. Guard your step. You know, and I was like, yeah, 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 I get it. I want, you know, whatever. So it was used uh, a little bit out of context, but as kind of a reminder of the mistake that I had made, right? The reason I tell you that story, not only my familiarity with it, but I tell you that story because this is a section of verses that demonstrates something important to us. If you if you take these first seven verses out of the context of this book, if you don't pay attention to all of the things that the writer has said in the first four chapters, and you don't pay attention to all of the things that he's gonna say in the remainder of chapter five and through the rest of the book, you can kinda look at these seven verses in isolation and you can teach them in a way that is in line with scripture but out of context. Okay, does that make sense? Now now you might look at it and go, what difference does it make? If it's in line with scripture, who cares? Well, here's the thing. If you take this, this section and you teach it out of context, uh, what ends up happening is that you miss what it's actually saying. So let me just example this for you. If you were to look at, there, are, I found multiple commentaries this week where people look at the first seven verses of chapter 1 through 5 and they use it almost like religious instruction. So when they read these first three verses, let's read them together. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. There are commentators and people who, out of the context of everything else Kohelet is saying, they, they will say, oh, well, this is a reminder to us to approach worship with reverence. It's a reminder to us that it's better for us to come ready to listen to what God has to say through his spirit and through his word than it is to just be articulating our own own thoughts all the time. And here's the deal. Those are actually biblical principles, right? It is important for us to come to church with reverence and it is important for us to listen more than we speak. Um, It is important for our hearts to draw near to God, not just to be rambling with a bunch of words. It says in verse two, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We even see that phrase in some of our worship songs, right? God is exalted and therefore you should just be silent in reverence and awe before him, right? And you can take that and and you can connect it with other passages in the Bible. Things like uh, what Samuel says to King Saul. Right in First Samuel fifteen, where um, where Samuel the prophet looks at King Saul and says, "God is more interested in obedience or of heeding him than he is in our sacrifices." Or you could look at uh, the very words of Jesus quoting the Old Testament when he says, "These people come near to me with their mouth." But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of rules taught by men, right? You can look at the reprimand of Jesus or the concerns of Jesus, even what he says in Matthew seven twenty one, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The emphasis in that part of Jesus' speech is it's not enough to just say a lot of religious things. You actually have to revere God and you have to know God. And that's all true. But it isn't what the writer to Ecclesiastes is saying in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. So what I'm trying to emphasize here, and let me do, I'll give you one more example. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter five, you get to verse four. And it says, when you vow, a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? If you take this out of context and you're not paying attention to the greater thing that the author is saying in the entirety of the book, you could be tempted to say, oh, he's turned aside here for a second to tell us it's really important that you keep your promises to God because God is a God of holiness and integrity and he's going to hold you accountable for the things that you vow to him. Vowing to God is a regular part of religious practice and along with... Worship and prayer and studying God's word. And it's very important that you have integrity and that you do what you say you're going to do to God. And that wouldn't be wrong, right? That also is a biblical principle. God takes commitments very seriously. And we could look at other places in the Bible that reinforce that idea. This idea of keeping your vow to God is almost quoted verbatim from Deuteronomy 23. We could look at Psalms 15, where it says that God wants us to keep our oath even when it hurts us, right? Keep our oaths even to our own pain. We can look at stories like the one in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira die because they said something different than what they actually did before God. So, so here's the thing. Is it important to listen more than you speak in the house of God? Absolutely. Is it important to keep your promises that you make before God? Absolutely. Is it more important that your heart draws near to God than just that you're rambling on with a bunch of hasty speech? Absolutely. Is that what Ecclesiastes 5 is saying? Absolutely not. And the reason why I want to emphasize this at the beginning of the, of the passage is because if you look at these first seven verses and you take one of those points of application, even though they are biblical points, you could miss what the writer is actually saying. Does that make sense? You might go, okay, I learned a lesson today about keeping vows. Now let's move on. But then you would miss what the writer is saying. It is important for us always to contextualize whatever verse we're studying. Those of you who are in the room who are maybe exploring things of faith or you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, it might, not be as, uh, it might not be as easily recognizable for you, although you might identify certainly places where the church has created horrible abuses by taking specific passages out of the Bible out of context and using them to enslave people or take people's land or whatever. There are lots of places where context changes everything. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room, in addition to that application, we're supposed to be students of God's word. We're supposed to care deeply about what God has said and what that means. And so it is important for us to pay attention to context, right? This might seem like a whole lot of fuss about nothing, but this contextualization is important. Because what he's doing in these first seven verses is in line with what he's already, he's already been talking about. authority. So if you were with us last week, you know that in Ecclesiastes 4, at the end of that chapter, and remember, chapter verses are arbitrary, but at the end of what we call chapter 4, he's talking about the succession of kings. He's been talking about the monarchy. He's talking about the succession of kings, and he says, you know what? Kings are popular for a little while, but then they get so prideful, they don't take anybody's advice, and then a new king comes along, and he seems like the savior for a little bit, but pretty soon, nobody will even remember him. What's he saying? He's saying, monarchy is futile it's all hevel it's all meaningless right it all cycles around now in this overarching conversation about authority and he'll pivot to oppression after this section he's talking about the same stuff He's bringing the same critical eye that he's had from the very beginning of the book. And in verses 1 through 7, it's just a continuation of his thinking. But now he turns his criticism to God again. He's done that before. He's already said, hey, God orders everything, but he hasn't bothered to tell me what he's doing. And to be honest with you, I don't really like the way he's organized it. That is the sentiment of the writer of Ecclesiastes. God has organized everything. He's in control, but he hasn't told us what he's doing. He doesn't clue us into what season we're in. And frankly, I don't like the way he's organized things. Now that same critical eye he brings here in chapter 5 is he's talking about authority and oppression. And what he's essentially saying here is not, hey, make sure that you guard your tongue when you come to God's house because he's so worthy of worship. What he's saying here is, you better be careful when you come to God's house because in all of your talking, you don't realize how foolish you're showing yourself to be because you're talking about things you don't understand. And in some cases, in all of your babbling, you're actually creating evil without even knowing what you're doing. There's an evil that comes when a man spends all of his time listening to his own voice instead of listening to God. Listen to what he says with this critical eye. Because in essence, what the writer here, through the character of Koholet, is doing... He's expressing frustration at the meaninglessness or the hevel of trying to understand or communicate with or commit to God. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And what he's saying there is, if you're going to go to the house of God, you better be careful. You, you better be careful what you're doing because you don't want to mess around with God, right? You don't want to mess around with him. He says, when you go to God's house, he says, be, be cautious, He says, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing is evil, right? He's saying there are these worshipers who make a lot of noise, and they they make foolish sacrifices without even knowing it. They, They, in their hasty hearts, he'll say this in two, he says, don't be rash with your mouth or let your hasty heart, or let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. What he's saying is that we come with all of our babbling. We come with all of our ideas and all of our thoughts and all of our speculation and all of our opinions. And we're talking and talking and talking. But we're talking about stuff we don't ultimately understand. We're talking about things that a lot of times we don't even know. And in all of that babbling and in all of that hasty talk, one of two things potentially can happen. Number one is we reveal what fools we are, he says. Or even worse, sometimes in all of our babbling, when our mouths are running, but our ears are plugged up, we end up doing evil without even knowing what we're doing because we come to the house of God, not to learn, not to admit that we don't know everything, not to admit that there are things we don't understand or that there's a difference between us and God, but we come wanting to postulate how much we know and how great we are and how organized we've, we sort of sorted everything out. He says, this is Hevel. It's foolishness and it's dangerous. He said, there are these hasty hearts that think they have it all figured out or that in all their talking, they will make up for the vast difference between them and God. When he says here, God is in heaven and we are on earth. So let your words be few. He's not saying, Hey, God is so great and you are his worshipers and therefore sit in reverence before him. What he's saying is you're doing all this talking, but you don't know that much about God because God is different than you. And to be honest with you, from the, from the viewpoint of Kohelet, he'd say, God is distant. He's disconnected. He's disengaged. He's off somewhere and you're here and you're doing all this babbling and it's not doing anybody any good. That is Kohelet's sentiment here. He says in verse three, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. He talks about dreams again in verse seven and uh, the commentators and theologians are a little split on exactly, the language is complicated, but the sentiment is that we have all these illusions or these, uh, these hypotheses about God But all they end up doing is sort of proving our own foolishness as we just babble on and on. He gets to verse 4 and he says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What Kohelet is saying here is, Hey, you better be careful what you commit to. You better be careful the kind of promises you make to this God because he doesn't like people fooling around and he's going to hold you to whatever you say. And if you say the wrong thing, the next thing you know is you're going to be scrambling to try and make excuses for why you didn't do what you said you were going to do. He says it would be better with this particular God who doesn't suffer fools lightly. It would be better if you kept your mouth shut. When you come to the house of God, don't say anything to him. At least then he can't hold you accountable for the stupid thing you said, right? That is the tone of Kohelet in this book. It's the tone of Kohelet before and it's the tone of Kohelet after. It would be wrong of us and contextually flawed for us to say that he pivots in the middle of chapter 5 or at the beginning of chapter 5 in the middle of his book and starts giving us religious instruction about listening more than we speak. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is once again saying, I'm looking at worship. I'm looking at the people before God and I'm saying to you, it all seems like Hevel. It all seems Meaningless. We make these commitments to God, but it just gets us in more trouble. It would be better for us to approach this incomprehensible, impatient God with caution and silence in order to limit the excuses you'll have to make and the punishments he might heap on you, right? If I were to summarize these first seven verses, it would be all your speech, worship, prayer, and vows are built on your assumptions, and that's meaningless. Your best bet is to be afraid of God. That's what Kohelet is saying. Your best bet is just quake in your boots and keep your mouth shut when you come near to God because you don't understand him and he's incomprehensible and distant and at the very worst, he's gonna punish you and at the best, maybe he won't look at you or throw a lightning bolt your way, right? Now, admittedly, that's probably not the Mother's Day message you were hoping for this morning, right? It's probably not the Mother's Day message you were hoping for. And it's why someone would be tempted, interpretively, to take these seven verses and go, no, let me turn it into religious instruction. Let me turn it into like, here's a good way to be a good worshiper and keep your commitments. But that isn't what he's doing here. We can do that in other places in the Bible. We don't do it here. What Kohelet is saying is, I've looked at it, and what I've got to tell you is, you'd be better when you come to the house of God to keep your mouth shut because all of your illusions about God just prove how foolish you are, and sometimes your assumptions about him end up proving evil and dangerous to other people. Now, that's heavy for us, right? It's heavy for us to hear him say it, but I want to stop for a second before we rush on, because if you've been part of the series all along, one of the things we're doing each week is we're looking at the way that Jesus speaks to the concerns of Kohelet, right? So in a second, we're going to pivot, and we're going to talk about Jesus. But before we rush off to that, I I kind of just want to acknowledge that there are some of you sitting in the room who have these very same observations and opinions about God. Maybe not all the time. But I would say that all of us go through seasons, moments where God doesn't do the thing you want him to do. Or where you feel like he's unfairly punishing you because you didn't keep your word. Or maybe these moments where you feel like you've got all kinds of ideas about God, but they turn out not to be true. Or maybe you come to a religious service like this and you feel like it's just a bunch of human beings talking and nobody actually knows what they're doing, right? Whatever your observations are, it's possible that you, where you're sitting this morning, feel some of what Kohelet feels. That you feel maybe like God is in heaven and he's distant and removed. Or that God is angry or that he's punishing, that he's ruthless, that he's confusing, Maybe you feel like mankind is wasting their time with religious practice. And so for some of you, depending on the day or depending on the moment, you you feel like all of this is Hevel. And before we rush on from it, I just want to acknowledge that you aren't alone in that feeling. One of the writers of the Bible felt the same way. That if you're going through a season of your life where you feel like God is distant or you feel like he's angry or you feel like he's punishing or you feel like you've got to just keep your mouth shut around him because you don't want to upset him. If that's your perception of God, I want you to know that you're not alone in that. I think part of the reason why Ecclesiastes was written was to give us a sense of solidarity in our earthly perceptions of a somewhat incomprehensible God. Does that make sense? And that there are going to be moments where who God is and what he's doing doesn't add up to us. And moments where religious practice doesn't add up to us. Moments where we're tempted to talk incessantly about our ideas rather than listening to God because we're afraid we won't like what he has to say. I want to acknowledge that some of us feel with Kohelet and moments, or sometimes you felt this way your whole life. Some of you feel like God is someone you need to be guarded from. Somebody that you need to be cautious around. Somebody that that you need to be cringing near because he just might smite thee at any given moment. I remember, here's a Mother's Day story about my mom. By the way, I'm going to tell this story. Uh, My mom is not here to approve this story. She is in heaven. She went to be with Jesus in 2020. But I I am gambling on the fact that when I see her again, she's not going to be mad that I tell you this. But uh, I could be wrong. But there's no crying in heaven, so we'll be fine. Uh, My mom was a, uh, she was the best I've ever seen in my life at uh, arguing with customer service reps. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I don't know any, she literally has a perfect record. Like, 10 and 0, or whatever it is. Like, my mom was the best at winning an argument with the girl behind the counter. I remember, um, just as an example, I remember one year, uh, my brother and I bought my mom a pair of pants from Mervyn's, which is a store that no longer exists, but you know what I'm talking about. And uh, my mom either didn't like the pants, or they didn't fit, or whatever, but we didn't didn't save the receipt, and in fact, we had taken the tags off, because we thought when you give somebody a gift, you don't want it to have the tags and things on so she just got the pants. No tags, no receipt, whatever. She didn't like the pants or couldn't wear the pants. I don't remember. It's all lost in a haze of uh, sorrow and grief, but my mom, uh, wanted to take the pants back. So she, she goes to Mervyn. She takes my brother and I with her and she walks up to the counter, the nice college girl who never saw what was coming. Uh, and she says, I'd like to return these pants. And my mom and the lady's like, Oh great. No problem. Do you have a receipt? And my mom's like, does it look like I have a receipt?" And at that moment, she should have known. She should have known what she was in for, but she didn't because she was young and she hadn't been jaded by Mervyn's yet. So the girl behind the counter is like, well, if you don't have a receipt, you know our policy is uh, that we can't return it, especially if the tags are off. Like, We don't have any idea if you've worn these or how long you've had them. There's no way for us to check any of that. you know." And my mom's like, well, I don't care about your policy and I don't care about any of that. I'm just telling you, we bought these pants. My, my kids bought them for me and we're bringing them back and we're gonna get our money back. And the girl's like, well, I'm just telling you. And meanwhile, like over the, over my mom's shoulder, my brother and I are both like, don't do it. Don't, you shouldn't talk to her like this. You know, we're trying to like warn her off. My mom escalates this thing all the way to the, you know, the supervisor, all the way to the manager. I think she calls like the district representative. I'm pretty sure my mom talked to the vice president of the United States about these pants, right? My mom blew the thing up. By the end of that day, we got the refund. We might've got some coupons to shop at Mervyn's later. The girl behind the counter is crying and I'm not sure she retained her job, right? My mom was the best, and so my brother and I, we knew that was the case, and we would go, like, we went to Toys R Us or whatever, we would always warn the clerks, like, hey, if you can help it, don't talk to her. She will beat you. You, She will win this conversation, right? What Kohelet is trying to, by the way, I love my mom, um, but what Kohelet is trying to say is very similar in sentiment with regard to God. He's saying, in my experience with my wisdom and everything I've seen under the sun, I look at this and I just want to tell you that my experience is God is distant and angry and looking for an excuse to punish you and you'd be better to keep your mouth shut around him. And it's worth looking at that and it's worth thinking about and it's not worth dodging because there are some of us in the room who felt the same way or some who are watching online who felt the same way. But what we also don't want to do is just sit in the ick of that, right? That there's some misery there. There is some futility and some meaninglessness there. And one of the things we've talked about every week in our study of Ecclesiastes is this. That when Kohelet put these words down, or when the author put them down in Kohelet's voice, when these words were recorded, Jesus had not yet come in the flesh, Jesus had not answered many of his concerns, but there are a lot of things in these seven verses that Jesus, with his life and work, answers very clearly. So I just want to look at them. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, this is the kind of stuff I would want you to write down, right? Because I will tell you that Kohelet's observations, while they were truly his, and they are recorded in Scripture, and they are not... Um, they are not contested in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? So even the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, he doesn't say, hey, Kohela didn't know what he was talking about. What he says at the end is, I understand that that's how you feel, but fear God still and trust him and obey him, right? That's the answer at the end. He doesn't say it's wrong to feel that way or your observations are stupid. What he says is, I hear that you feel that way and you should follow God still. But we, living in 2023, after the death and resurrection of Christ, the incarnation, we have answers to some of these concerns that the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't have. So I just want to look at a few of them in in short term here. The first one is uh, right out of the gate. He says, you need to be on guard in verse one. He says, you need to be on guard. You need to be cautious when you come to the house of God. And I, I just want to speak to the fact that because of Jesus, we have a whole different perception of even what the house of God is. When you think of the house of God, my fear is that maybe you think about this building or maybe you think about this property, that maybe you think about church buildings around our city or in other places. But what we understand because of the work of Christ is that Jesus, in, in, in all that he did, he undid the idea of God residing in a building, right? Uh, the Old Testament prophets foretold that God would no longer dwell in a tabernacle or a temple, a place that you have to approach with caution, but that God would make his home with us, So the first thing I want you to see that Jesus speaks to is this idea of approaching the house of God. When you think about approaching the house of God, you've got to change your paradigm because of Christ. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 uh, verses 19 and following say this. They say, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Kohelet's day, he had to go to the tabernacle or he had to go to the temple. God resided in a physical place. But because of the work of Christ, God's house is us. And I don't mean this room at all, or this property at all. I mean God's people. Each of us are spiritual stones in a living house that is a residence for God's spirit. We individually have the spirit of God living within us. So when you think about Kohelet's advice to like, hey, be careful when you go into the house of God, remember that because of Jesus, what has been articulated to us is that we don't have to go anywhere to be with God. He came to us and is in us and with us at all times, right? You don't have to come here to meet with God. He's not in this room in any special way. The only thing that's special about this gathering is that it is a gathering of God's people and therefore it is the breadth and beauty of what the body of Christ looks like that you can't see in a segregated place. When we're all together, that the beauty of God's body is on display. But God doesn't have a house you walk into with trepidation. We are God's house individually and more importantly, we are God's house corporately. That's what Ephesians tells us. The second thing I would speak to is the sentiment of Kohelet in Ephesians 5 is that God is removed, that he's distant, that, he, that he's removed himself in some ways. And so when you talk about him, you're talking about a thing you don't know because he's so far away. God's in heaven and you are on earth. Well, Jesus speaks to that as well in, in his very person. In his incarnation, he comes to the earth. He is near us. I love what it says in John 3. Um, in John 3, the writer, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this about God's, in Christ, his superiority. It says this in John three thirty one: He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Part of what Kohelet feels is a sense of distance, the, in some ways, the superiority of God. And what I want you to see is that the superiority of God is actually a thing. God is greater than us. He is worthy of our worship. And in fact, in John chapter 3, it says that Jesus is superior in, in the places that he's been because he comes from heaven. He's superior in his understanding. He's superior in his power. He's superior in his access to the Holy Spirit. He's superior in every category. But what John also says is that the superiority of God does not imply distance. And in fact, the superiority of God is a great gift to us because he's superior in what he knows and superior in power and superior in experience because he's the creator of all things. He actually has the ability to offer us as well resurrection life. So when we think about God's superiority, we don't see that as separation. We see that superiority as the key that unlocks peace for us. Truth that can actually be known and understood It's actually a great thing that God comes or that Jesus comes from somewhere else and has seen more than we have seen and has more power than we have and is greater than us. All of that doesn't create a distance between us and God, but rather it creates love and peace and joy and security for us in knowing where truth can actually be found. Kohelet says, God's in heaven and we're on earth. There's no sense in talking to him. But the very incarnation of Christ says, God is all of these things superior to you in every way. But he comes to you and he offers you life that you can't find anywhere else. Jesus himself speaking, I think, in response to the sentiment of Kohelet. Kohelet is afraid. At the very end of these seven verses, he says, you know what? At the end of all of it, I got to tell you the best thing you can do. Be scared of God. Be scared of him. When he says fear God in verse 7, he's not talking about reverence. He's talking about knees knocking, quaking kind of fear. The best thing you can do with this God is just be scared of him. But Jesus would say something drastically different. If your impression of God is that he wants you to be scared of him, listen to the voice of Jesus. Listen to the voice of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In John chapter 14 verse 27 the voice of Jesus again says peace I leave with you my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. So hear the voice in Ecclesiastes saying, hey, when you come to God, you better be knocking in your boots. You better be scared. You better be afraid because he's so much greater than you, right? And he's looking for an excuse to punish you. But listen to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, come to me. I want to help you rest. I want to give you peace. I want to love you well. In fact, I'm going to give you the peace I have because you don't have that in and of yourself. Do you hear Jesus saying, stay away? Do you hear Jesus saying, hey, you know what, I'm better than you, so you better create a little bit of distance? No, Jesus says, come closer. My peace and my joy and my love are for you. Many of us have fear of God because we're we're worried about judgment, and Kohelet certainly felt that. He says, don't make any commitments, because if you do, you're going to find yourself making excuses when God comes to try and punish you for saying something foolish. But listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 4, Verse 13, about the way love, the love of Christ, replaces a fear of condemnation. 1 John four thirteen says, By this we know that we abide in him, that's Jesus, and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. We've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know th- and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Kohelet is saying, hey, you know what? God is big and he's got his plans and you don't know what they are and you'd better keep your mouth shut around him or you'll be in trouble. You should be afraid of his judgment. And Jesus comes and with his death and resurrection, it's so beautifully articulated in 1 John, what Jesus extends to us is his love. And when we receive his love, guess what? There is no room anymore for fear of condemnation or fear of judgment because as we are in the world is is basically the revelation of Christ. We are seen as Christ when God looks at us. There's no fear of condemnation. There's no fear of judgment anymore. Jesus speaks to what Kohelet stated here in this book. Just two more I want you to see. If you feel fearful about your past or you feel fearful about the, di- the distance between you and God as a created being, Hebrews, Hebrews 10 also speaks to that. And the confidence we have to approach him. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, again, this is Jesus' answer to this concern, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, right? Kohelet says, ah, when you go to the house of God, you better be careful. You better draw near to him with a cower and you better sort of hunch down so he he can't get a good look at you, right? And the writer of Hebrews says, no, because in Christ, Jesus has made a way for us to approach the throne with confidence. We have been cleansed of our sin. We put our faith in Jesus and he's opened a way for us to have a renewed relationship with God. I guarantee you that when the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Hebrews to put these words down on paper, the writer of Ecclesiastes was probably moved to tears when he heard those words articulated, that we don't have to be afraid, that we don't have to cower down because Jesus has made a path. The last thing that I think Jesus speaks to that we hear in Kohelet's voice in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 is this. It's the fear of what happens when you break a vow. I would guess that everybody in the room has at one point or another, uh, done something different than what they said they were going to do. And maybe you don't think of yourself as an oath breaker. Maybe you don't think of yourself as a vow breaker, but I actually have met a lot of people in our community and in our neighborhood who define themselves as people who've broken their commitments. And maybe that's because of things that have happened in your marriage, or maybe that's because of things that have happened in your relationship with others. There are all kinds of ways that people can all of a sudden start to see themselves as irredeemable because they've broken a vow. And part of the sentiment of what Kohelet is saying here is this idea like you'd be better off not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it. Because if you break a vow, God's going to come after you. And I know a lot of people who live in fear constantly of like, I am worthy of the wrath of God because I've broken my my commitments or I've broken my word. Now listen, it is a true thing. And again, we talked about this at the very beginning, that God takes commitments very seriously. But when you were tempted in this room, When you are tempted to define yourself as someone who is unworthy of God's love or define yourself as someone who is irredeemable or someone who is not worthy of being used in the kingdom of God because of commitments you've made that you've broken. I would want to remind you of the way Jesus speaks to vow breakers in John 21. In John 21, after the resurrection, Jesus meets with Peter for the first time. Jesus meets with Peter. Peter is a guy who not too long before that had said to Jesus, look, I don't know what the rest of these disciples are going to do when things go down. I don't know what these other turkeys are going to do. They may all run into the woods, but not this guy, right? Peter doesn't run. Peter's here for good. I'm not going anywhere. I would rather die than betray you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, I wish you hadn't said that out loud, dude. You're going you're gonna to betray me here before the day is done, right? Peter didn't just make vows to his wife. He didn't just make vows to his co-fishermen. He didn't just make vows to his neighbors. These are vows that Peter made to the Son of God that he broke. He broke vows to the Son of God. And I don't know if you want to create a hierarchy of which vows are the most important not to break. But it seems like in the grand scheme of things, the vows you make to God are the ones that are the most important. So in John 21, after the resurrection, when Jesus and Peter meet up again, You guys remember that scene where Jesus sees Peter for the first time afterwards and he goes, you dirty punk. I have been so looking forward to this opportunity to say to you, you were talking out of your ear when you made me all those vows. And then it took you only what, like eight hours before you broke them. You know how sad that made me. I'm so angry with you, right? You remember that speech in John 21 when Jesus shames Peter for breaking his vows, when Jesus curses him, when he says, you can't be a disciple anymore. Get out of here, you vow breaker. There's no room for you on my team. You don't remember that because he doesn't do that. In fact, in John 21, Jesus barely points at the breaking of the vows at all. If he points at it, it's only through sort of an illusion. What Jesus does instead with Peter in John 21 is he looks at Peter and he says, we love each other, don't we? And Peter says, yeah, we do. And he says, well, then let's get to work. We love each other, don't we? He says, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You know what Jesus does? He he reinstates, if there was ever a a de-instatement, he reinstates Peter for the work of the kingdom. There are people around the world today and historically who think of Peter, the vow breaker, as the founding father after Jesus of the Christian faith. That is not a guy who was disqualified because of his vow breaking. He is a guy who was loved and appointed to ministry, called to serve and commissioned by Jesus himself the one to whom he broke his vows. If you're in this room this morning and with Kohelet you feel like you're too far gone or you've broken too many commitments or you've done things that are too wrong or you've been too nasty or whatever. I get that that's how you feel because that's how Kohelet felt too. He felt like no God wouldn't want, God God wants to punish me. He doesn't want to love me. But Jesus says that isn't true. Look at Jesus in John 21, and then I want you to feel the sense of him looking at you and saying, when I look at you, I don't see a vow breaker. I don't see an oath breaker. I see someone who loves me and whom I love. Now let's get to work, right? Follow me, Jesus says. As we finish this this morning, I just want to reiterate again that I know there are some of you in the room today who feel what Kohelet feels, right? You feel like God is distant, maybe. You feel like he's angry with you. You feel like, at the very least, he's confusing, And like maybe mankind is wasting their time with religious practice. If that's how you feel, you're not alone. There are people, you know, thousands of years ago who felt the same way. And there are lots of other people who feel that way today. But I would want to remind you that if that's the way you feel, that your opinion on this and Kohelet's opinion on this is not the final word. Jesus has the final word. If you feel like God is distant or that he's angry or that he wants to curse you because of your mistakes, I want to plead with you to look at Jesus, listen to what Jesus does. He doesn't say, stay away. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, you can't come in. He says, I've made a way for you to have access. He doesn't say, we can't know each other again. Keep your distance, be afraid. He doesn't say any of the things that Kohelet in his earthly perspective under the sun has perceived. Instead, what Jesus reveals about the character of God is that the character of God is such that it is always drawing near to us and drawing us near to him. Kohelet's view, while it was truly his view, and it is recorded here accurately, was a wrong view. Not not wrong for him to think it, but wrong in its assessment. It was proven wrong by the life and character of the Lord Jesus. And if you're here today, it's okay to feel what you're feeling. But I want to tell you there is hope, and that hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I pray specifically for the people in this room who feel like you're far away or feel like you're angry or feel like you are looking for an opportunity to punish or feel like you uh, aren't even really worth worshiping because there's so little we can understand. I pray, God, that you would lift their eyes to Jesus, that they would see Christ and his invitation to draw near, to find peace and rest, that they would look to Jesus and see his forgiveness and his grace. That they would look to Jesus and see the way in which he opens up pathways for us to be restored and renewed. That they would recognize that we don't come to the house of God, but that your desire is that we would be your house. That you would live in us and with us individually and corporately. Would we find hope today in recognizing that Kohelet's observations, while while truly his, are not an accurate representation of who Jesus has revealed God to be?